Luke 10, 25-37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, said, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighborhood? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring out oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Thank you so much for reading, Ben. So we love stories. And Disney Plus and Amazon Prime and Netflix are counting on the fact that we all love stories a lot and are willing to have new content come up at us in the form of stories. Stories make us ask questions. Stories let us live inside other characters. It gets us perspective that we might otherwise not have had, but because we look through the lens of another character in a story, we see things differently. And a lot of times, big questions are attached to stories, particularly, I think, with the stories of Jesus, the stories that he told. While they are short stories, they they come with some very big questions. And throughout this series, I want us to look for the next several weeks about the stories that Jesus told and some of the questions that those stories raise in his time and in our time. Because Jesus, what he does with the stories is he presses into our hearts. That's always the target. What you do matters to Jesus. And how you think also matters to Jesus. But what you do and how you think is greatly affected by your heart and what's going on there. As you begin to read the stories, and you heard it even in what Ben read a moment ago, as you read the stories of Jesus, you actually see that many of his stories actually come with an introduction. So there's this setting. There's people around him a lot of times, not every time, but a lot of times. And as you pay attention to that, you actually learn a lot. Like, okay, Jesus is talking to people. Who are they? And often they're asking Jesus questions. What are those questions? And maybe even greater than that, what is the agenda behind the questions? And furthermore, what does Jesus recognize about the people that are asking him questions or the people who, whom he's telling a story to? And what is the agenda of Jesus in telling stories? Those background often give us like some insight into that. 
before Jesus tells the story that we're looking at today, just interesting, the background would tell us that there is kind of a trap laid out. So there is a religious scholar, it says a, a lawyer, it's an expert in the law, it's an expert in the law of Moses. So it's a religious scholar who is trying to put Jesus to the test, or another way we could say it is, he's trying to put Jesus on the spot. He was trying to trap Jesus. He was trying to pin Jesus down to this, oh, this question that's like, it's unanswerable. Like, yeah, people have been arguing about this for years, and if we can get him talking about that, maybe there's this unanswerable question. And, and you know how this goes. I mean, we've probably seen enough press conferences or heard enough sound bites coming from the press conferences that so-and-so says, oh, I misspoke, because it was like a little sound bite. And that's all that someone wanted. They wanted to create a situation where it would be lose-lose, where no matter what you said, you're going to look like an idiot, and you're going to look like you said something you shouldn't have, and then we're going to blow that news story up for about 24 hours and then move on to something else. That really is a lot of what's going on here. And the question that's first meant to trap is the question in verse 25. The man asked Jesus, like, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Which even as you think about that, there's a, there's a definition question there, like, what do you do to inherit? Like, inheriting doesn't seem like something that really requires you to do. You don't do anything normally to gain an inheritance, unless you have a system in mind where you kind of score points and you earn points so that someone will reward you with something. But that really isn't the way you look at an inheritance, but that is the question. And I think even as you hear the question, what do I need to do, the man is asking, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? It kind of actually shows some things, it reveals some things. Do you see eternal life as something you earn as a reward after death for all the good things you do? I mean, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Is it a reward for all the good things I do? the way I behaved, that I get after death. Is that the way you view it? Well, it's very different than the way Jesus teaches us to view it because in John 6 and in John 10 and in John 17, Jesus said this is eternal life, that you have a relationship with God, that you know Him. That's eternal life. Not a, a system where you earn something. Eternal life is about a relationship. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus receives a question, and asks a question. He says, what does the law say? How do you read it? And I would imagine the, the man asking the question, like, this is bread and butter for a religious scholar. They would know the answer to this. They would have studied long and hard about this. There's pretty much a consensus answer, and he gets the answer right. He said, this is what the law says. You love God, in verse 27, you love God with all of your heart, your soul, and your mind. That's from Deuteronomy. And then you pair that with loving your neighbor as yourself, and that's from Leviticus. And that's the way you answer the question. I'm sure he felt satisfied in that answer, and Jesus, again, presses a little further with his response, and he says, good job. You know, that's, you've answered correctly, so just follow your own advice. Just do that all the time, all right? Just love God with everything you got. And, and love your neighbor completely as you love yourself. You live up to those standards and you know what? You'll inherit eternal life. If you con consistently meet the standard, you don't need grace, you don't need mercy, just keep, 
keep living up to that standard as if, as if anybody can do that. It's, it's like at that moment, I think the tables really turned. So the man, remember the man had come to put Jesus to the test, to put Jesus on the spot. And at that moment, it seems like it turns because now you kind of get the sense that he's feeling like he's being put on the spot by Jesus' answers to these questions, sometimes questions responding to questions. I don't know if it's whether like it's exactly what Jesus said or the way Jesus said it, but something tells us that the man's uncomfortable. So with the desire to justify himself, Scripture says, he asks this question, so exactly who is my neighbor? Notice, I mean, what he asks is, it does matter, but why he asks, it also like matters. To justify himself, he asks, who is my neighbor? Can we just take a moment thinking about that? To justify himself, like gives us a glimpse into a window, actually the appeal to justify yourself, something actually that I, I have no, really no problems relating to. I understand this appeal to justify myself. I think we all work hard, pretty hard, to see ourselves in the light of doing the right thing, being the right kind of person. We have no problem like trying to justify ourselves and trying to kind of make sure others know we are in the right, trying to do the right thing. It's why when I'm criticized, when you're criticized, you actually want validation. And that's why you might say something like I might say, well, I was just trying to, and what are we doing there? We're, we're trying to communicate, listen, listen you're, you're acting like I'm in the wrong, but I was just trying to do this. See, I actually was in the right, and I need you to know it. I want you to know it. It is why instead of looking bad or inadequate or just stupid, we want to be, we want to be viewed as good, like we have what we need, we can take care of this, and we're sharp enough to see through what... That, that's the way we want to be viewed. We want to be justified. When we feel like we might not be, we get uncomfortable like the man, getting uncomfortable. Like, okay, can, we, can you answer a question for me? Who exactly is my neighbor? We get uncomfortable. I know there's tendencies in my, my own heart to kind of even reshape a story. Just so it definitely, by the end of it, the person listening knows everybody else wasn't getting it, but I got it. I was ahead of the curve on that one. I said just the right thing at just the right moment. And sometimes this comes subconsciously. It's not like I'm, I'm intending to puff myself up. It's just that desire that people know we're right. We push back when someone maybe insinuates we weren't. We argue, we blame shift, or we just get silent and go, well, I know I was right, but if if you want to act like I'm not, that's just your problem. You can sit in your ignorance, but I know, I know what I was trying to do. I mean, this, this is not foreign to us. So this man who came trying to put Jesus to the test, I think I identify with him more than I'd like to. So his tactic there was asking Jesus a question that would be a limiting question. So if he asked, like, who is my neighbor, he, if he can limit that question limit the answer to what he's already doing, then he's actually going to be justified. He's, 
He's going to feel righteous. He's going to feel as if he's accepted before people, before God. And so again, he drills in on that question, who is my neighbor? And there's a definition question. The definition could, okay, what's the minimum requirement for me to love my neighbor so that I pass this test? And we all know about minimum requirements, test scores we've got to get, uh, an entry level we must have, fill out the paperwork, get in the forms that we can do this so that you can, you can do what you need to do. Just tell me what I need to do. And it's a limiting question. Who who exactly, Jesus, would, would you say is my neighbor? And this is an expert in the law. So, like, you might not be super familiar with Leviticus. I know I'm not, but he would be. So he would know what the law actually said about this. Even as he asked the question, he's like, ah, I know the right answer to this. So, so the answer to this generally from Leviticus that would be settled in an Israelite's mind would be, the neighbor is the relative or the person of your own ethnicity or nationality. Take care of them. Love your neighbor. And then a neighbor would also be someone who's like the registered immigrant who is going to be with you and is committed to you. The stranger in Leviticus language, the stranger who sojourns with you, they're, they're, they become a part of you. That's your neighbor. And I think the man knew that. And yet the answer he got from Jesus was something very, very surprising. I hope, like, it's so important that you get that background and that context because as you go into the story, this is what Jesus does. So he hears that question, knows the man, is trying to justify himself, and so he tells a story, and it's a short story, and it's a simple story. So the plot line isn't too complex here. The story is this, that a man is robbed, left for dead, Two people walk by who should have stopped and helped. One other person comes by, and he's the most unlikely to help, but actually he stops and notices. And that man, a Samaritan, uses resources to help the man who's been beaten. That's a simple story. Maybe the tendency is to, like, boil it down into something like really, just really easy to understand, and you can make it pretty generic, like, yeah, you ought to do nice things for people who have had hard times, and you can boil it down like that. There's something about hearing that that doesn't really move our hearts much. It, it may make it a tad neater. I mean, you can even press it another, another layer, like, well, and, and many have observed this, Jesus doesn't want to define a neighbor. He actually wants to create a neighbor. So who can you be a neighbor to? And I think that's also helpful. But, I, but I'm, I'm really, really careful about thinking like a quick saying that I can throw up on like a magnet on a refrigerator or put on a bumper sticker of a car. Like I, I'm, I'm doubtful that really changes a life real quick. I think it's more than that. And I, Jesus knows that. And so even the story he tells, as simple as it is, it actually pushes into our heart. Because remember, the guy is asking the question to justify himself. Jesus isn't just interested in giving him something that he could write in eight words or less. He's going to work on the man's heart, and he's going to work on our hearts as well. You almost hear Jesus saying, what if loving your neighbor? So that's what we're talking about. What if it looked like this? What if loving your neighbor looked like this?
one of the first things that I think is helpful to this story is basically an invitation to put yourself in the place of the beaten man. So if we're going to live in the story and appreciate it, I think that's one step to identify with him. We actually call the story, probably most of us have become familiar with it, it's called The Good Samaritan, David Garland, who's written a lot about the book of Luke, actually says we could give it the title, The Traveler Beaten to a Pulp and in Need of a Neighbor. It doesn't have quite the same ring to it, does it? But if we do put ourselves in the perspective of the man that was left for dead, if it gives us an invitation to look at that as actually our condition, your condition, my condition, then the story does some things. Some of you, and it's heartbreaking to realize this, but some of you, you have no problem, no difficulty in identifying with the person who is beaten and left for dead because you've been the victim of things that like, are too horrible to speak of. There are those that deal with hurt, betrayal, abuse, mistreatment. Some of you have been lied about, misrepresented. And so it's actually not that hard for you to think of, like, what would it feel like to be pretty much left for dead? And unfortunately, that's the reality that some feel. Maybe there's another angle. Maybe you do feel like, Curtis, I do feel like the person left on the side of the road, like left for dead, but I, I recognize I don't have anybody to blame for feeling like that other than myself because I've caused it all. So it's not as if someone took advantage of me. Actually, actually, Curtis, I believe lies. I got trapped. I, I felt like I couldn't find myself my way out, I lived only for myself. I pushed away people that tried to love me and tried to care for me. But now it's like I have to live with the results of those choices and I feel like I'm just left alone. Or maybe you don't have like a super traumatic story, but let's face it, I mean, after a year of disappointment, compounded with more disappointment, compounded with more change, compounded with more loss. Maybe you feel even there like you're worried and you're weary because something could just wreck your life in a moment and you really couldn't do anything about it. And maybe that's where you feel like, I, I don't feel like I've got a traumatic story, but I do feel like worn out and I do feel like life has, like life has really taken its toll. There's yet another condition of like, being the person helpless on the side of the road, in some ways it's a pathetic and pitiful picture for the person that is so intent on justifying himself or herself that they would be willing to try to trap Jesus. I mean, what's going on in your heart that you would think, my best solution here is to make Jesus look bad? How far have you gone down the road of things not working the way they should? What if you are the beaten man? Then the, neighbor, then the neighbor would be the one who came to you in your time of need. The neighbor would be the one moved by compassion, acts in mercy to help. See, I think it's just a different picture. If we see ourselves as one in need, then maybe we are close to 
close to exactly what Jesus wanted in Matthew 5 when he said, the ones who are blessed in this world are actually the poor in spirit, which we go, nobody talks like that except for Jesus, where he turned it upside down and said, actually the people that are most blessed are the ones who realize they need the most, the ones who are poor in spirit, because they realize someone came to help them in their time of need. What if we realize that? What if we realize, yes, I am the person in need, helpless and beaten up, and yes, someone came to me, and it was God himself in the flesh, in Jesus Christ. What if we realize exactly what drove him and motivated him to come? What if we realize the one that came for us came in mercy and in compassion, moved with compassion? Well, then we begin to put our story together, and all of us, frankly, all of us are spiritually bankrupt and poor before God. Someone has said, grace comes to those who have no other alternative but to accept it. Grace comes to those who have no other alternative but to accept it. Because you even you put your best efforts on, you try to like, give the best impression of yourself that you possibly can, the best projection of who you want to be, and still you know deep down, still you know, I, I don't measure up to the standard of Jesus there we are on the side of the road. Another part of this picture that just strikes me is, yeah, I'm beaten. It's not that hard for me to look back at my life and go, there are more, than, more times than I care to think about where either my own choices or the choices of others have left me really, really hurt. Life really, really complicated. It's at that moment that I actually get a picture of not only did Jesus move toward me in compassion, but there's also another picture here of Jesus actually became the person on the side of the road. He was actually the one beaten, left for dead. Actually, no, he wasn't just left for dead. He was killed on a cross. Moved by compassion, he didn't just identify from a distance, but he came to exactly where we are. And in Jesus Christ, God provides righteousness for us that we never could earn. Jesus, it says, for our sakes, he became poor so that we could become rich. When you see things that way, it changes you. It changes you. It softens your heart. When I'm really living in light of that sort of mercy shown to me, it's hard for me to be a prosecuting attorney to all the, all the bad stuff I see everywhere else because I know, man, I was the person. It becomes easier. My heart gets a little bit softer, so I actually notice people like the Samaritan did, and I actually... I'm actually moved by compassion, not just duty, not just obedience, but I'm moved by compassion because I know something greater has happened. I've been loved, and I'm, I'm willing to even expend resources when, like, no one wants to make themselves more uncomfortable. But what moves that? It moves me when I know that I've been loved. So God says to love our neighbor. But this story teaches us something, if we'll just look a little bit deeper into it, and that is the love that God requires is actually fueled by the love that God gives. So Jesus is not going to soften any of it. He is going to tell you, love your neighbor as yourself. But the love that God requires you to give is actually fueled by the love you've received. Things change when you get to that point. You're you're just asking a different set of questions. You're not like, okay, how can we limit this to like make it so small that I actually can go check, did that? 
You're not so worried about definitions that protect you from getting your hands dirty. You're not so much motivated by dutiful obedience. So everybody else thinks I'm a pretty good person. Like, it's not about that. So who is our neighbor? Who's the person that we see in a place of need? Love your neighbors yourself. Meet the need of others with, as someone has said, with all the speed, eagerness, energy, and joy with which you meet your own need. We're going to come into contact with a world that needs mercy. That's it. That's just a given. I can't imagine we'll be done with today before we're going to come into contact with someone who needs mercy. Eyes open, we'll, we'll see them. We'll see them. I'm grateful for our church. So this doesn't even come as really a rebuke. It is a call to like, let's be like Jesus. Let's hear his voice. But I look at those that I know. I know their stories of retirement. And although that meant a change in their work status, it didn't mean a change in how much they love and serve those who are in great, great need. It happens all the time at Ogletown. People intentionally even putting themselves in place where they will see needs. I think of those that care deeply in our church for the poor, not just as an object of sympathy, but a person who must be loved. I think of those and how, how deeply our church has been affected by, by those who take in foster kids. I think about how deeply our church is shaped by those that welcome immigrants new to our area, new to our country, new to our culture. Maybe I can help. Who needs me to be a neighbor? You know, when, you, when you're in a suburban context, sometimes, the, sometimes it's a little bit, let's be honest, sometimes it's a little bit easier to hide. Hide the, the brokenness for a little bit longer, but... We all know, we all know in our context, Stephen, often things are not okay. We have coworkers and friends at school and we have neighbors. And we know the store, we know they're abused, we know they're mistreated. It feels like I can't do much, but, but could, you, could you be there? Could you notice? Could you move with compassion? Could, could you notice those that are struggling like, no one, no one is calling on all of us to be mental health experts, but could you notice the person who just seems to be sinking in depression? Person wrestling through panic attacks that they, they frankly don't want. They don't, they don't need those. It's not making their life easier. And could we, could we notice some of those things? Could we move toward the person who, yeah, they've caused a lot of pain in their life through a path of substance abuse or sexual sin, and could we move toward them in love? It's not easy. There is no formula do these things that just like, we'll give it a certain amount of days and everything gets better. It's not like that, but do we move? Do we move to those who are hurt and lost and bitter because they're confused and conflicted about, about all the failed dreams that now have disappointed them? Do, do we not see those? Surely we see people. And surely if we are those people, what makes all the difference is someone coming to us. We see neighbors everywhere 
a little bit differently because we know without Jesus, we are beaten down and hopeless. But we've been loved. And so we listen and we listen and we listen some more. And we pray and we love and we pray and we love and we listen and we pray and we love. I mean, this is, this is what it means. I love the way Ray Ortland speaks of a church community that is shaped by gospel, the good news, plus safety, plus time. I love those combinations, like gospel, safety, and time. You probably saw this, but as the story comes to an end, like in just like one moment, Jesus says, the word games are over here. Like, we're not playing over definitions. I'm trying to find like a lowest common denominator so everybody feels good about themselves. Jesus actually ends the story with the command. And he says, you've heard the story, now go and do likewise. In verse 37, I know I've talked a little while this morning, but I want to leave you with two questions. Short story, big questions. Question number one is what, what will it take What will it take to really convince you of God's mercy, of God's love to you? Maybe you got, I don't know about convincing. I just haven't thought about it that much. I'm kind of living my life. That's not my thing. If that's other people's thing, that's fine. That's not my thing. But when will you start thinking of where your soul is with the one who made you? When is that going to happen? Or or maybe you say, well, Curtis, I, I don't, I hear mercy and I think, I don't need mercy. I've, li- I've lived a pretty good life. I've tried to do the best I can. I, I, compared to others, when are, you, when are you going to get off of playing that game and humble yourself before the Lord and go, you know, I, I can do the best I can and it's still not enough. What will it take you to be convinced that God shows mercy to you? And, and yes, even for the person that goes, Curtis, I don't know what it'll take because I don't think I ever could deserve God's love. I go, yeah, that's actually, the fact that you know you don't deserve it is not a disqualification. That's actually the, the qualification. You have to know you don't deserve it to receive it and to enjoy it. What will it take to really convince you? And I'm not even saying like, well, yeah, I, I prayed a prayer or something 20 years. I'm saying like, even right now, what will it take to really convince you that you're going to walk out those doors knowing, if I know one thing, I do know that God loves me. And God has shown mercy to me. I think once you're convinced of God's mercy to you, the whole drive of the story makes you ask one more question, and that is, okay, in light of that, who is God going to put in front of you? Who will God put on the path in front of you? Who will it be? I don't, I don't know what your week's going to be like. I don't know what my week's going to be like, but I'm pretty confident God's going to put people on the path in front of me. And they're going to need the mercy of God. And in that moment, I have a call from God. Love your neighbor. You've been loved. Let that fuel loving your neighbor. Can we ask God's help for that? It's easy to pose questions, Lord. It gets really hard to love our neighbor as ourselves. For the person that feels more 
beaten up than loved, I pray they would have some breakthrough that can't be manufactured or orchestrated, but certainly can be accomplished by the work of your Holy Spirit. May you seal our hearts knowing we are loved, and then let that fuel. Oh Lord, I know our area, our schools, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, they, and they need to know what it looks like for love of neighbor to be fueled by love that we've received. So it's not too hard for you, even if it seems way too hard for us to do this to any degree. Fuel our hearts through a really clear look at your mercy. We thank you for that today in Christ's name. Amen.